left off last night. At the point where Yudhisthira and his brothers and Kunti come to the Panchala Palace, Jupiter's Palace, and introduce, introduce themselves as the Pandavas. <clears throat> Something happened just before this, which uh, is one of the most remarkable um, aspects of the Mahabharata. When, when Arjuna and Bhima fought their way out of the Swayamvara arena and took Draupadi back to the potter shop where Kunti was staying. Kunti was staying there probably because uh, she did not want to disguise herself in the same way her sons did and it, uh, she preferred just to wait and hear about what happened. Now the Pandas got there, they were in a very happy mood. That, they wanted, that Arjun had one Draupadi. And uh, sometimes when people are jubilant, they speak in a joking way. Now every day, the Pandavas, the brothers would go out, three or four of them, and they would collect alms. Again, they were disguised as Brahmins, and so they would go out and collect alms. And so every day when they came back, their mother would say to them, uh, whatever you collected, divided up among the brothers. So when they came back, Draupadi, uh, I mean Kunti, Queen Kunti, the mother, heard them come in, she had her back to them, and they called out to her in sort of a joking, jubilant mood that uh, we had a real good collection today, meaning Draupadi. It went well today, and so Kunti said what she'd always said, that um, divided up among all the brothers. <laughs> At that point, there was silence. Uh, and so to, to understand this story, uh, it's necessary to grasp how seriously people took their words in those days. Um, just a word on this, and as Shankar uh, reminded me, I have to, we are going to finish the story on time. Um, we have to think of the difference between an oral and a literate society in the sense of a society which, in which people don't write things. Everything is oral and a society in which people do write things. Anyway, there, this is a whole field of study in scholarship, but the relevant point here is that for us in the world that we live in, uh, if something is very serious, you sign a document. You put it in writing. Uh, my guru, uh, Prabhupada, used to sometimes joke and uh, sort of a saying, an old English saying, uh, you can say any damn thing, but don't put it in writing. And so, we live in a society where if someone claims that someone you know, committed themselves, where do you have any documentation? have it in writing. And the result of this is that oral communication, while still having some legal force in certain contexts, but oral communication has lost much of its importance. Now if you think of a society in which nothing is written and everything is oral, your word, what you say, 
is in every sense a binding legal document and your honor, your respectability in society, your integrity, everything is wrapped up in what you say, in, in oral communication. So I think it's important to understand that distinction, to realize that when Kunti said that, that whatever he brought back, divided up, uh, nowadays we would think, huh, you know, she didn't get the joke, or no problem, just turn around and see what we're talking about here. And, but back in those days, and, and another point I've noticed in the Mahabharata is that just as nowadays, often, let's say, a younger generation, we, including myself, of course, as the younger generation. I, I know <laughs> my generation, uh, we were certainly not like our parents in some ways. We loved our parents and all that, but we had different values in some ways, and I'm sure the same is true today, that children are not exactly like their parents. And Back then, I mean, we, we have a general picture of, of ancient society where it could go on for centuries, if not millennia, and basically nothing ever changed. But actually, uh, we are, in the Mahabharata takes place as we are rushing into a change of yuga. And so actually, just as nowadays we live in an age where so many things are changing very quickly, uh, the way people live, their values, and so on. So in the same way, actually back then, thousands and thousands of years ago, again, according to Aryabhata, the great astronomer, 5,100 years ago approximately, uh, because one great age, the Dwapar Yuga was ending, and another great age was starting, actually, everything was changing. People noticed that, and it was an age when people said, boy, you know, everything is changing. And um, you can actually detect a difference in values, in a sense, between older generations and younger generations, even in Mahabharata. So that Bhishma, for example, the grandfather, who... Uh, once he says something, literally come hell or high water. It's like whatever the consequences, the whole universe can <coughs> blow up, and, but it doesn't matter, I'm going to keep my word. The consequences don't matter. Interestingly, Kunti, although she's certainly a younger generation, uh, she's certainly a younger generation than, she, in a sense, Bhishma is her, let's say, father's generation. But still, uh, as we remember, one of Kunti's most famous qualities was her devotion to elders. Her devotion to elders, and uh, that's originally how she got the boon from Durvasa, because she served that elder yogi so faithfully. So Kunti really is like Bhishma in a sense. That whatever you say, that's it. Doesn't you know, The consequences don't matter. Interesting, interestingly, the younger generation, including Krishna, and the Pandavas, they're much more pragmatic. And, you know, we want justice in the world. Things have to be done right. What really matters is what happens to people. And uh, that's the overriding moral concern. And we can't get hung up in technicalities. We have to make sure there's really justice. And so, anyway, Kunti, from this older generation, she said, whatever you brought, divided up, and then there was dead silence, and she realized something's wrong, and she turned around and saw what the day's collection was. It was dropping. <laughs> so, <clears throat> at that point, uh, everyone realized the implications of her statement. Everyone was aware of it. 
So Yudhisthira, as the leader of the brothers and as the heir to the throne, he said that, well, you know, it was just a joke, it was a misunderstanding, and Arjun won Draupadi. And, uh, of course, had he interpreted Kunti's words literally, he stood to participate in this marriage. But he, he said, no, it's, she, she was Arjun Wandropati. But Kunti insisted that, again, that her words were very similar to Bhijma, that even though I misunderstood and so on and so forth, I made my statement as the mother and as the head of the family, I made this statement. To make a long story short, um, this is a very famous part of the uh, Mahabharata, that uh, the Pandavas, all of them, all five of them, are going to marry Draupadi. Uh, we have many cases of polygamy in the Mahabharata, especially kings marrying various wives. This is polyandry. This is a case where uh, a woman married several husbands, and this was controversial even 5,000 years ago. I mean, if you find this surprising and sort of an, you know, oh my God moment, uh, 5,000 years ago, people were very surprised, and, and, and not the least of them was Drobody's father. Hey, Dad, I'm getting married. Really? Who's a lucky guy? Well, there's five of them. <laughs> so even Drobody uh, was really bewildered by this. Bless you. So, um, a few words on this. Because ultimately, ultimately, uh, what the Shastras or these ancient texts say is that actually the, this is Leela. In other words, God or Krishna orchestrated these things. So why, why, were, why did things happen in this way? This extraordinary way. For one point, this I didn't mention to Omkar, we discussed yesterday, but one point that occurred to me is that um, Draupadi was so beautiful that her beauty actually was almost a, a, literally sort of a lethal weapon. And, um, in fact, one gentleman who was very attached to Draupadi never got over his crush on her. And uh, because of that, this actually led him to all kinds of bad behavior, was Duryodhana. It specifically mentioned that Duryodhana, when he came to the slime bara and he saw Draupadi, he really fell for her. He was already married, by the way. But he really fell for her, and um, he, being an asura, was extremely angry and jealous and bitter about the fact that his arch rivals, the Pandavas, had won her and not him. So he, for the rest of his life, would be bitter and angry about this. And uh, in a sense, this was an example of Draupadi uh, taking, doing her part in the mission to save the world. Duryodhana was an asura. His clear intention was to participate in this conspiracy to take over the world. And yet because of Draupadi, uh, it's not that Draupadi changed his plan or his mission, but it made him more reckless and therefore exposed him. Uh, it made him vulnerable. In other words, uh, the original plan was to follow Dharma. It was to follow Dharma, to manipulate Dharma, sort of like manipulating the power of the Force to, in order to promote the dark side of the Force. So, in a sense, Duryodhana was going to do this anyway, but it, it, this kind of brought him out. It, 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 it actually brought him out so that he acted more transparently and everyone could see what he's doing because of this, this attachment to Draupadi and this bitter anger he felt at losing her. 
And uh, ultimately, the Asuras are going to condemn themselves a little later in a gambling hall when their attachment to Dropi leads them to engage in extremely inappropriate behavior for which uh, they'll be cursed to die. Anyway, uh, so basically, Jupiter, you know, Jupiter asks his daughter, like, who's a lucky guy, or this is Arjuna, and well, first he assumes it's Arjuna, and then Yudhisthira says, well, actually, we have a, a dharma within our family, and this is actually what's common even in Europe at a certain point, that um, the elder brother should be married before the younger. And you see this, in, for example, in English novels in the 19th century, that an older, a younger daughter should marry before the older daughter, and so on. And so uh, Jupiter said, well, whatever, you're all Pandavas, you know? And if, any Pandava is great with me. And then you just start trying to break the news to him as gently as possible that actually they were all going to marry her, and he was shocked. But somehow or other, he was eventually reconciled to this. And um, so there was the point of, uh, in a sense, the success of this mission to defeat the Asuras depended on the Pandavas remaining united. I think this is one point as we looked at it. So the idea was that if one of the Pandas married Draupadi, whose beauty was so powerful, uh, this could lead to dissension or, or whatever. And so to maintain the Pandas absolutely united, somehow this arrangement came about. Also, they were self-realized souls. We have to remember this. They, they were aware that they were on a mission on the earth. They were aware that they were not actually earthlings, that they were not going to stay there. In a sense, none of us are going to say that this is the point of the Gita, right? That every soul should realize that we have to leave this world. We're all just visiting here. And the bodies we've been loaned, these, these bodies are sort of on loan. And we have to give them back at a certain point, give them back to nature. And so the Pandavas, being clearly aware of this, uh, were simply working as a united community. The Pandavas and Draupadi and so on. And uh, so somehow this was the arrangement. I think it's also sort of a balancing thing because we hear cases about men marrying various wives and this is sort of like a, uh, shows the other side of it. So it's not always just a man's world. Anyway, so much for the marriage of Dropity. One of the remarkable events. Now, when the Pandavas married Dropity, which they did, uh, this changed the balance, again, changed the balance of world power. This was a dramatic shift in world power because the Pandavas now had a, a, a strong kingdom behind them. They had married into this great kingdom. And now with the Pandavas, remember Drona had only defeated Panchala with the help of the Pandavas. Now the Pandavas were on the other side. This was a, an immediate crisis for the Kurus. If you try to kill someone and the person knows you tried to kill them and you fail, you have a problem. So this was the situation with the Pandavas. And uh, of course they knew that uh, Duryodhana tried to kill them. Duryodhana knew they knew this. Um, also, Drona's conquering of half of Panchala. There's, we never hear a single word of Drona ever going there and actually governing anything. And so it seems like uh, once Drupada begot this son, Dristadyumna, who killed Drona, sort of in a quiet, way, uh, the whole kingdom reverted back to Drupada, because we never hear a word about Drona having any type of political authority in that area, or ever even going there again. In any case, the Kurus immediately had you know, an emergency uh, meeting, 
this was this was an all-out crisis because not only was the Pandavas back, they were back with a whole with a huge army behind them, and they knew that the Pond the Kurus had tried to kill them, and there was serious fear of an invasion, a Panjal invasion of, of the Kuru kingdom. It, it was a it was a sort of an unprecedented crisis for the Kurus, and they met. And of course, uh, the people that met are the usual major figures. Of course, there are Yodhans, there was his father, Vidurastra, Drona, Bhishma, Vidura, uh, perhaps Kripa, and so on. You know, the people who, who are, are always there. And there's an interesting private conversation before this, before, or, or maybe, you know, during the recess or whatever. Karna and Duryodhana have a private conversation. And it's interesting that um, Duryodhana who is afraid to directly confront the Pandavas. He's actually afraid of them. And so he thinks of every possible dirty trick he can pull. Like, we'll ambush them, or we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get them from behind, or we'll try to stir up jealousy among them over Drogadi. We'll do this. Like, and Karna keeps telling him, you know, forget all these sneaky plans. Go out and fight them. Be a man. And actually, the Sanskrit word that Duryodhana, uh, Karna keeps using is Vikrama, which literally means step out. And it's also a way of saying in Sanskrit, uh, you know, you know, have courage, go, be, you know, be a man, Vikrama. And so, uh, finally, and then the elders meet and they come to an agreement that they will send Vidura as an ambassador, as a Kuru ambassador, because Vidura is the best hope of the Kurus to bring about a peaceful solution. After all, the Pandavas are very attached to him. Vidura, I mean, they're obviously going to take very seriously whatever Vidura says <coughs> because of that relationship. And so Vidura agrees, and the proposal is to divide the kingdom. Interestingly, Drona, before, had manipulated Kuru power to divide Drupada's kingdom. is now back with his kingdom, and it's the Kuru empire that will be, that will be divided. And so that's the proposal that, you know, hey, we're all family, you know, we accidentally burned your house down, but, but but ultimately we're all family, so let's just all work together and you take half the kingdom. So that's the proposal. Now on the Pandava side, of course, you can imagine Bhima or some of the more uh, passionate members of the group saying, let's take it all. Let's get these, you know, point, point, point. let's get these guys. And, uh, but ultimately, uh, Yudhisthira, who is devoted to Vidura and consults with Drupada because Drupada is now family. And so they all they all talk together when Vidura comes and agree to accept the proposal. Now, uh, a detail. Duryodhana and Vidurasta will remain with the traditional capital, Hastinapur, with all the riches and all the, you know, the great architecture and all that stuff. They're going to keep the capital. And they offer the Pandavas the uh, extraordinary opportunity of developing uh, undeveloped real estate, the wilderness. They offer them this place called Kandava Prasta. And um, the Pandavas think, you know, whatever. So they take it. Now, Kandava Prasta is very interesting for various reasons. Uh, number one, the Pandavas will build a beautiful city there and that city today is the capital of India. That Delhi, New Delhi. It's um, because the Kandu Prasta or, uh, was on the, uh, 
Jamuna River, and Delhi's on the Jamuna River, and Hastinapur's on the Ganges. So they built a city which actually, even today, is a great city. Um, <clears throat> another important detail, which is often overlooked because, again, sort of combing through the Mahabharata, pulling out things here and there, starting to put together a composite picture, what we find is, you may remember that when the Asuras attacked, when the Asuras invaded the earth, some of them took birth as animals. Because therefore, because in that way, without violating Dharma, Pashu Dharma, the Dharma of animals, the Dharma of beasts, they could actually kill, they could attack and kill yogis, sages, brahmanas who were maintaining, in a sense, the strength of the godly civilization by killing them. This is sort of a common theme if you study these battles in literature, that if you can get rid of the Brahmins, that they can somehow kill the Brahmins who by their spirituality, by their mantras, by their power, are, are doing a lot. It's not only the warriors who protect and maintain the society, the great sages also uh, play a major role in that. And so if you can get rid of that, them, that's sometimes even more important than killing the kings, because the kings depend on their gurus, on their teachers, uh, for wisdom, sometimes for practical strategy, and, and certainly to keep them aligned with Dharma so that the forces of the universe are actually acting for them and not against them. So this was actually an important point, to get rid of these sages, Brahmins, yogis. Now, it so happens, and again, I, I suspected this because there's going to be a big fire in that forest in which a lot of animals are going to die. And I suspected that this must be those Asuras who took birth as animals, they must have been, been sort of headquartered or concentrated in that forest. And later, as I was reading the Mahabharata and Sanskrit, I actually found an obscure verse that no one sort of noticed that actually says that. That was the case. In any case, so Duryodhana gave them some land, which first of all was kind of wilderness. So, so you know, we'll keep the imperial capital and you get all this beautiful nature. And secondly, Duryodhana sent them to, the pl to a place where there were all these Asuras hoping undoubtedly that the animals would take care of them. These Asuras were actually had taken birth as animals. So the Pandavas go there with Draupadi, and uh, they get to work. They start clearing land, they start putting up buildings, and because they are, people love them so much, and because their rule is so just and so sublime, they're, they're actually great managers, that within a short time the city starts to grow, people start to come. And uh, it specifically mentioned that people from all the four castes, Brahmanas come, and, 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 and merchants, and workers, craftsmen, the arts begin to flourish. And uh, the city becomes a trading center. And so on. So within a short time, Indraprastha is one of the great cities of the world, almost overnight, you could say. And um, now, what about that Kandava forest? Uh, There's sort of, a, sort of a popular story which got into the Mahabharata that uh, the forest is going to be burned down. This great forest is going to be burned down. And uh, there's, there's a popular Hindu story that basically Agni, uh, that certain kings had offered so much sacrifice to Agni pouring ghee, clarified butter to the fire, that, that he had a serious, serious case. He was having some cosmic case of indigestion. And the conduit forest was full of herbs. He just needed to digest a baby. Uh, so apart from that tale, um, I think the, 
the real story is that, and not that you, you know you burn down a forest and kill all kinds of animals just because you're you know you're burping too much or something. So the, the real story I think is is found in the text if you look for it. This point about the animals. Now there's a there's a very interesting scene where. Uh, Krishna and Arjuna and some of the ladies, they had gone down to the Jamuna River, basically take a you know, take a few days off, a little vacation. Uh, in uh, Dwarka, they would go to Rivata Mountain. So it's interesting, they actually had resorts and vacation areas back then. And uh, so they were they were there and it's it's interesting because the women you know, these are these are Kshatriyas, warrior women. They, they were actually wrestling matches among the women. Not all of them. I mean, not all of them were wrestling. Some of them were doing other things. But uh, so, so the typical, you could say, Hindu stereotype of, of, of what's a, a good woman, uh, not exactly. The, I mean, Subhadra, Krishna's sister, was expert at driving a war chariot. The skill she uses later on with Arjun. So, and of course, it's not that the women were men. Uh, you know, these were very beautiful women with all kinds of abilities, but. This is Vedic culture, not necessarily later Indian culture. In any case, uh, they're down there, and suddenly a Brahmin, someone that looks appears to be a Brahmin, comes to them. This person has red hair. That's another interesting thing. This ancient Indo-European civilization, we find, for example, Indra's blonde, Narada Muni's blonde. Uh, this person comes with red hair and a red beard. And... Uh, he begs charity from Krishna and Arjun, who are warriors. And of course, I mean, they see he's, this is a respectful Brahmin. Everything about him indicates that he's a learned Brahmin. And so they instantly agree. And as soon as they agree, he actually transforms. And it turns out it's actually the fire god of me. And uh, he tells them that this, this conduit of the forest, which is near there, has to be burned. And he wants Krishna and Arjuna to assist by preventing certain animals from escaping the forest when it burns. And if you remember that the gods are coming to earth in various forms to save the earth and the asuras, the Mahabharata mentions that the asuras that took birth as animals, uh, they were sort of centered, that was their center in the Kandu forest. And Agni's now going to do his part. And so Krishna and Arjuna station themselves at different ends of the forest. And Agni, it's a great you know, visual thing, which sort of whirls into this pillar of fire. If you know the Bible, you've already heard about pillars of fire. Anyway, and then he begins to consume this forest, and, uh, and those demons are, are killed. One more word about Krishna is that um, by this time Krishna is living in Dwarka. Uh, this may be, we can't say for sure, but there is a reasonable, or you say a plausible possibility that uh, this is the origin of the of, of the story Plato tells of Atlantis of a city in the ocean that uh, was, which was so, so to speak reclaimed by the ocean. Uh, Krishna was living in Mathura. Then another demon, Jarasandha, we're going to meet again very soon. Jarasandha uh, kept attacking Mathura and Krishna kept defeating him, but he kept coming back. And so Krishna wanting to uh, save the Yadus from this constant disturbance of Jarasandha's attacks, uh, created a city in the ocean off the western coast of uh, India, the part of India closest, by the way, to the Greek world. Anyway, he created this, this city called Dwarka, 
on the west coast, off the west coast of India, and uh, it was this fabulous city of palaces and gardens and so on. And they transported all the yadus to that city. I mentioned Lantus because what all of the uh, scriptures teach, and what has now been confirm confirmed by by uh, archaeology, is that the ocean, in fact, did rise and cover and cover that area, and they cover the area of Dwarka. So anyway, that's just one possibility. That of course Plato, there was contact between uh, the Greeks and certainly the Persian Empire. They have constant communication. The Persian Empire was on the border of India, had constant communication with India, and somehow this may be the origin of that story, Krishna city of Dwarka. In any case, uh, the Pandavas established themselves there. They were very successful, so much so that Krishna, who and realizing that Yudhisthira, not the Asura Duryodhana, was the rightful heir to the throne by Dharma, and that Yudhisthira's success, in a sense, Yudhisthira's victory was necessary to save the world, at that point encouraged Yudhisthira, or in a sense insisted that Yudhisthira should perform the Raja Suya sacrifice, the great offering of kings. Because any king that could perform that sacrifice would thereby establish himself as the king of kings. Uh, this is true because in order to perform that sacrifice, in order to have the right to perform it, uh, and not just make a clown out of yourself that no one paid attention to, uh, you had to send out a challenge horse. You had to send out a challenge all over the world to all the other kings, saying that either accept me the king who wished to perform the sacrifice had to send this message that accept me as the king of kings or fight. And so the four Pandavas went in the four directions. Uh, Arjun to the north. Isn't it Bhima? Was there Bhima, I think, to the east. Uh, Nakula to the west. Sanadeh to the south. Interestingly, Saladay was so good-looking. He was actually the youngest of the Pandavas and incredibly good-looking. His, his parents, of course, were the Ashwins. That there's this pretty funny story. He goes down to South India and he goes into this kingdom and he's so good-looking that everyone gets so excited. It's like a rock star, a movie star coming to town. And he actually has to tell everybody, you know, can you please be serious? I mean, I have to do this. I mean, this is a serious matter. And he, he's greeted us as like this rock star celebrity, and so he has to, he has to get the people to calm down and, and, and deal with this matter. <laughs> anyway, so the Pandas uh, go out in all directions. Most of the kings accept the rule of Yudhisthira for various reasons. Number one, because the Pandavas are, are so powerful. Number two, because people realize this is actually Dharma. That Yudhisthira is really reestablishing, reestablishing uh, by Dharma the world order that existed previously before the Asuras kind of interfered. So the Rajasuya sacrifice is performed. The Rajasuya sacrifice is performed. And uh, even Duryodhana comes. He has no choice at this point. Duryodhana comes, Duryodhana Everyone comes, and all the, all the great personalities agree to help you to steer. In a sense, it's, you know, it's a win-win because the Kuru is reestablishing their position in this way. It's, also, it's good for everybody. The rising tide lifts all boats. So everyone took some service. Bhima took charge of the kitchen. Bhima took charge of the kitchen, and because uh, you know he, he knew 
Duryodhana agreed to manage the treasury. He was knew about money. And uh, interestingly, Krishna washed the feet of the guests that came. Krishna took that service, and uh, Nakula and Sadev uh, took care of the elders. So everyone, everyone took some service. Uh, at the Raja, now, at the Rajasuya sacrifice, at the very beginning, there was an important procedure where the assembly, the assembly of all the great kings and the learned Brahmin and so on, they would elect a, an honorary, you could say president, or honorary leader of the assembly who would receive the first honors. This is a very big thing, to receive the first, because all the important people in the world were there. And so the question arose, who will get the first honors? Now, there are different versions of, I mean, in the Mahabharata, Bhishma stands up and makes a speech on behalf of Krishna. Like, this is, you know, are we really even going to discuss this? Krishna is here. In the Bhagavatam, uh, it's Sanadeva that makes a speech. Perhaps they both made a speech. In any case, uh, a speech was made by a leading personality that this is not really an issue. Krishna is here. And Krishna is actually Purushottama. The supreme person is actually the soul of the universe. So, disguised as a Yadu prince. Now, one person in the assembly hated this idea and actually, literally, just completely went wild, lost all control of himself. And that was Shishupala. And this is a famous story. Shishupala was a cousin of Krishna. If you study the Mahabharata, a lot of the events take place between cousins. Not only Krishna and the Pandavas. Shishupala is another cousin, Viduratan and Dantavaka are also cousins. There's also uh, people in Avanti who are cousins. So there's all these different cousins. There's the people who are not generally known very well, the uh, Kekayas. Five Kekaya brothers who were actually major players in all these events and today are not really known so well, but they were very important back then. So these are all cousins, somehow related through, uh, mostly through uh, the different sisters of Vasudeva, Krishna's father. One of them, of course, is Kunti. Thereby, their cousin Pandavas were Krishna's cousins. There were other sisters who had. So, Shishupala was also uh, a cousin of Krishna, and from his very birth, he hated Krishna. He was definitely an asura. In fact, he was a major asura. And uh, he despised Krishna so much so that there are even stories. What a story about 100? Krishna would accept 100 insults from him, and after that, no more. In any case, uh, Shishupala. Uh, immediately stood up and began, I guess, sort of screaming and shouting in the assembly, drawing his weapons. You know, you weren't supposed to draw weapons in the assembly hall. And uh, he, he began insulting Krishna in every possible way. That uh, Actually, some of the things are sort of comical, because he says, we don't even know what Varna he is. Because, of course, one of the points of Krishna is he's beyond the system. And he was, bo- he was born, except to a family, raised by cowherds or Vaishas. And now again was a prince, and so in a sense, Shishupala is saying, no one even knows where he comes from. No one even knows what his barn is. Anyway, Shishupala insulted in so many ways, and the people there, many people were outraged. Bhishma was outraged. The Pandavas, of course, were immediately went for their weapons. And uh, so uh, Shishupala, you know, who had drawn his own weapons, it was really unclear what he was going to do. He was like wild with rage. And so Krishna restrained everybody, told, you know, Bhishma and the Pandavas, just everybody calm down. And Krishna took his most famous weapon, the chakra, 
Sudarshan chakra, this beautiful weapon, which is like this disc spinning at almost like like inconceivable speed, and it's it's the irresistible weapon of Krishna. Nothing can resist it. And so Krishna invoked his chakra and released it and uh, cut off the head of Shishupala right there in the assembly. What's interesting, and this is what has made this incident very famous, and it's always talked about later in the literature, is that in the presence of everyone, within the sight of everyone, the soul of Shishupala emerged from his body and merged into the body of Krishna. So Krishna actually, this is one of the principles in these texts, that if Krishna kills someone, he gives them liberation. Krishna actually liberates them. They don't go to hell forever, they're liberated. So everybody actually witnessed this. It was an astonishing thing that people are still talking about, actually, within communities that know about these stories. And so, that was the end of Sishupala. Uh, whoops. Oh, we have a few more minutes? that a four or five? It's a four. There's one more story I want to tell because it's actually an amazing story. And uh, it's related to the Rajasuya sacrifice. And that is the killing of Jarasandha. Jarasandha, after Kansa was killed, Jarasandha became you know, the Asura on the planet. In fact, Jarasandha had married his two daughters to Kansa. So this was a very tight Asura clan. And when Krishna killed Kansa, you may remember this evil Kansa who was just wantonly murdering people by throwing him off the top of a stadium. Uh, the daughters went home to dad and you know, explained what had happened. And Jarasandha decided he was going to kill Krishna. And so that's when he attacked Krishna so many times. Krishna eventually sort of playing with him and um, destroying his armies. Krishna actually never captured Jarasandha because every time he defeated him, he would go back and get more asuras. And so Krishna was actually taking advantage of the situation to rid the world of huge numbers of asuras. And so he let Jarasandha go back and raise another army every time. And this went on 17 times, the 18th time Krishna saw that he basically exhausted Jarasandha's and most of his armies, and so he transferred his people to Dwarka. Now, before the Rajasuya, we actually have to take a step back. There's so many things to coordinate here. Before the Rajasuya, when the Pandas were challenging all the kings, there was one king who would never accept the Pandavas, and that was Jarasandha. Now, before the Rajasuya, there's a famous incident that took place in Dwarka. Krishna was sitting there in Dwarka with his royal council and other members of the other dynasty. And Narada Muni, the great Narada, came and said that uh, Jarasandha has captured all these Yadu kings. There, there were different Yadu kings in different areas, and Jarasandha had forcibly had arrested them, had captured them, defeated them, because he was this huge Asura, this really powerful Asura, and imprisoned them in these caves, and he was planning to butcher them. He was planning to make a human offering, a human sacrifice, and cut them to pieces before an image of the goddess, which is not obviously not what the goddess really wanted, but that was his program. And so these kings sent a message through Narada to Krishna that, please, you know, you're our last hope. If you don't save us, we're going to meet this horrible death. And there was a plea even from the families, from the wives and children of these kings. At the same time, uh, Krishna had decided that uh, Yudhisthira had to perform the Rajasuya sacrifice. That was necessary. And so when these two 
sort of because Yudhisthira had just invited Krishna to come there for the sacrifice. So Udava, one of Krishna's most intelligent advisors, said that we can't really perform the Rajasuya sacrifice until we kill Jarasandha. So let's kill him first and then do the sacrifice. So the way they did this was, it's an amazing story, Krishna, Krishna, uh, Bhima, and Arjuna went to Magadha, the kingdom of Jarasandha. Today it's Rajir. And he went there in, in Bihar. And they went there disguised as Ratas. Uh, as, not only as Brahmins, there was a custom, just like, for example, today when people graduate, they kind of, sometimes they sort of have wild parties and things. And um, I've heard in Israel people graduate to go to India. Or to get out of the army, to get out of the army. Or something. And so, um, anyway, there, there was a type of uh, youth called a Brat, that means he just graduated from his studies and everything, and they would kind of dress in different ways and go around the countryside having a little fun after all the discipline of their of their studies. And so Arjuna, Bhima, and Krishna dressed as these Radhas and they went to that town. And um, they went as Brahmins again to ask to beg a favor of Jarasandha, which would be a fight. So it's an amazing story. The Mahabharata describes that when they went there, they, they did not go through the, the entrance of the city. The city was surrounded by hills. It's called, it was, it was called um, Giri Braja, which means it was surrounded by hills. And they simply, and on one of these hills, there were all these uh, sort of, not, not sacred things, but kind of like mystic or religious things for, for the sort of the horrible things Jarasandhas could do. Because even for Jarasandha sacrifice, there were all kinds of Brahmins and so on and so forth. The Nazis, by the way, you know, had mystic rituals and things. I, I saw that in the hills outside Heidelberg, you can see some of the remnants. Of the, they have their own quote-unquote religion. So Krishna and Arjuna, they went over the top of this hill where they had all these different things set up and just destroyed them all and then went right down to the city. Of course, this news immediately came to Jarasandha that these so-called Brahmins are in the town and they're kind of destroying public property. They went into the marketplace and started taking whatever they wanted, like when Krishna entered Mathura. In other words, just showing that they had absolutely no respect for the law and order of Jarasandha. Just kind of doing whatever they wanted, breaking things, taking things. And then they walked into the palace. They walked into the palace, and uh, there's this amazing story where they've gone to, they've gone all the trouble to disguise themselves, and so the first thing, and so Jarasandha welcomes them, and they say, who are these troublemakers, these vandals, to, you know, were dressed as Brahmins, and, but still, he follows the formality and welcomes them and, you know, offers them charity, and so the first thing Krishna says is, please note that I'm not actually a Brahmin, I'm actually your enemy, Krishna. <coughs> and then, uh, Krishna tells them that since you offered us something, we want to fight with you. To fight to the death. And uh, Jarasandha feels he's too good for Krishna. He won't fight with Krishna because he thinks it's beneath him. Because Krishna, no one's clear what his position is in the social order. And he says, Arjun is young, is too young, and he's you know he's not a match for me. Bhima is actually strong. We'll fight with Bhima. Now, just uh, let me take two or three more minutes, and then, then, then we'll end. Um, the word Jarasandha, if you know Sanskrit, Sandhi, placing things together. Uh, when Jarasandha was born, there's a whole story in the Mahabharata how his parents, uh, his father, Brihadratha, the king, was childless, and they somehow got the favor of a Brahmin, and he blessed them that they could beget a child. But the child was born in two halves, sort of stillborn. The child was born sort of dead in two halves, two perfect symmetrical halves of a human body from top to bottom. And so it was so shocking, the mother, she was so like horrified, she sort of threw these, she told her, her, her nurse, just take these pieces and throw them in the forest. 
So they were found there by a, uh, how do you call it, a witch or a rakshasi named Jiraf. And she was kind of playing with the pieces, you know, they're kind of into uh, <laughs> gothic stuff like that. So she was sort of, she was sort of playing with the pieces, and she just, she saw they were two perfectly formed pieces. She put them together, and and the child came to life. And that's why it was called Jarah Sanda, put together by Jarah. Anyway, so a terrible fight was held between Bhima and Jarah Sanda. It went on for days and days and weeks. And they were both, they both followed Chapter Dharma. At night, they would actually, you know, sit around together and talk. They would respect each other, but during the day, they would fight. And this went on for weeks and weeks, and no one could win. And finally, Krishna thought, enough. We, we have to, you know, move on here. So, the story about Jarasandha was known, and so Krishna gave a hint to Bhima. He took a little twig, like a twig, a fork-shaped twig, and just pulled it apart like that. And Bhima immediately understood. He was able to throw B, uh, Jarasandha down. He put one, he, he put a foot on one of Jarasandha's feet. He grabbed the other foot in his hand and just ripped him apart, just separated him back into those two pieces. And that was the end of Jarasandha. It's sort of a, you know, yeah, it's sort of for guys. Anyway, so he he ripped Jarasandha apart. And then the Rajasuya sacrifice is performed. So I'll end with this. At that, uh, at that Rajasuya sacrifice, uh, first of all, Duryodhana, even though he cooperated, participated, he was burning with envy. Because he came to the world to take it over. He hated the Pandavas for really no good reason. And seeing Yudhisthira honored like that, he was, it was more than he could bear. And then finally, when the sacrifice is over, just the family stayed back for a few days, uh, something happened which would enrage Duryodhana so much that he would again very aggressively try to destroy the Pandavas. And so we'll talk about that this evening. <laughs>